Hey, Eight and a Better Nation, it's Rachel from Chasing Justice, a new podcast co-hosted by me and San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin. This week, we did a crossover episode with Sajid and Avi of Eight and a Better, and we hope you enjoy it. We also hope that you check out Chasing Justice and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Chasing Justice a podcast about rethinking our approach to criminal justice in the United States. Each episode, we explore a topic through the lens of the progressive prosecution movement. I'm your co-host, Rachel Marshall, and here with me is San Francisco's own progressive prosecutor, San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin. And before we get started today, I wanted to ask listeners and fans to please rate Chasing Justice on Apple Podcasts or Google or wherever you get your podcasts right now even better if you give us a review and we'll actually give a shout out on a future episode to the review that moves us the most. With that said, how are you doing today, Chesa? Doing okay, Rachel. Good to be back with you. Uh, always nice to carve out a little bit of time in a hectic schedule to check in and talk about what motivates us and the challenges we're facing and the challenges facing the system in which we do our jobs. It's true. And speaking of the system in which we do our jobs, today we're being joined not by other prosecutors, as we often are on this show, but instead by public defenders. And you and I, of course, were both public defenders before our current roles. And I love my job working for you. I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to You're work. Just towards... saying that. Ahead. <laughs> You're just saying that. Uh, I am excited that we get to work towards systemic change, um, as we talk about all the time here on Chasing Justice. But I will, I would be lying if I said I didn't miss anything about being a public defender. And I'm curious if that's true for you as well. Are there things you miss about your days as a public defender? No question. I, I loved my job as a public defender. I was very happy doing that work. And I think the part of that job that I miss the most, of course, the client relationships, you know, advocating directly for an individual who you serve and build a relationship with was a, was a critical part of that job that I don't have as a, as district attorney and really none of the staff in our office have, because we don't formally represent even crime victims. We advocate for them. We advocate for justice, but formally we represent the people. And in some ways, that's the part of being a public defender that I miss the most because there's a simplicity and a clarity of purpose when your job and your ethical obligation is to advocate for an individual. Now, in my current role as district attorney, my job is to seek justice. That's a much broader, more amorphous, complicated uh, mission and mandate. Does our impact on this individual or on the community that we're accusing them of having harmed actually promote justice? Does it actually promote public safety or does it make things worse? It is always our priority to avoid incarceration, to use it as a last resort, but we don't control all of the other parts of the system. We don't have the ability to build meaningful alternatives for people who don't need incarceration, who won't be helped by incarceration, who won't be rehabilitated. Um, but who do need some intervention. And the system as it exists today doesn't have those. And so we're dealing often with multiple bad choices and no perfect path, no obvious answer. That's challenging, but it's also rewarding. And I'm excited to be in a position to try to build those alternatives little by little. 
It's funny. I, I think sometimes as a public defender, it was very easy to say how easy the prosecutor's job seemed. But you're right. I mean, it, it's much more complicated on this side, not in any way to minimize how hard public defenders work and how difficult their job is and how many obstacles they have. Um, but I'm glad you brought up the idea that prosecutors don't represent individuals, because I think there is a lot of misconception. When I was a public defender all the time, I would have victims approaching me and saying, my lawyer isn't getting back to me. Uh, My lawyer is the DA. And it's really, I think, something most folks don't understand that the prosecutor's job is not to represent a victim. And of course, prosecutors in many ways do advocate for victims. and, And we have a victim services unit in our office and work to protect victims and prevent there from being future victims. But at the same time, as you mentioned, the goal of a prosecutor is to do justice. And that means thinking about all of the people in the system, all of the people in our communities. And that's actually going to be the focus of today's episode is thinking about the people that the system touches. Um, Prosecutors, as we all know, get up there and they say their name and say they're for the people. They represent the people. And so what does it really mean to be for the people? Who are those people that are impacted by the justice system? Yeah, these conversations about who we represent and what that means and how we seek justice are necessarily weaved into the conversation that we're about to have, and in many ways, the conversations that we have in our office every day. Our system is referred to as an adversarial system, and often it is, but it's also important to remember that there are numerous points of collaboration, and many times, even in the context of a jury trial, the pinnacle of the adversarial legal system, we have to collaborate with our adversaries. I think we have to recognize bigger picture that there are real benefits as well as uh, imperative of collaboration, even within a system that we define as adversarial. I think that's right. And if a system is working fairly to really promote justice and safety for victims as well as defendants, then I think it's important to explore the way that good relationships can benefit the system overall. And I know our guests today will have a lot to say on that. So let's get to it. When we come back, Santa Clara County Public Defenders Sajid Khan and Avi Singh, the co-hosts of Aider and a Better podcast, join us for this crossover episode of Chasing Justice. Stay tuned. Joining us today are two public defenders with their own podcast, Sajid Khan and Avi Singh, the co-hosts of Aider and a Better and current Santa Clara County, California public defenders. Avi Singh is a public defender for over 10 years now and handles felony trials. In addition to co-hosting Aider and a Better with Sajid, he's the president of the Asian American Criminal Trial Lawyers Association. Sajid Khan is also a public defender in San Jose and now handles homicides. Sajid maintains a blog on social and criminal justice, closing arguments, and is a contributing author for the National Association for Public Defense and Silicon Valley Debug. Sajid and Avi, as I mentioned, co-host the Aider and a Better podcast, where they talk criminal law, society, and justice, and I definitely recommend that Chasing Justice fans check it out. 
Also worth mentioning that both Chesa and I were guests on your podcast for totally different reasons. And I will never forget that I showed up and Avi immediately had to leave because he had to run to the hospital uh, to meet his wife who was about to have their baby. So Sajid and I had to do the interview alone. So hopefully there'll be no more emergencies uh, in today's episode. We're not currently expecting, so I should not have to. Uh, if I say my pager's going off, I've got to run. Just uh, it's not about that. I had a good time on on the show. It was uh, about a year ago now, but we tried hard to make it work in person, if I recall, and schedule even in the pre-COVID era schedule did not permit it and we had to do it remotely. So I'm uh, sorry to say that we're still in a remote dynamic and we'll have to look forward to an in-person recording once the public health officials so permit. Yeah, we had a great time with you, Chase. Uh, you think you were our first remote guest and it's a kind of ironic, I guess that was a precursor to uh, what was to come in the year 2020. And then Rachel, I had a great conversation with you. Um, so it's really exciting to be back with both of you all in one place and with Avi here too. Today, we're going to walk through the stages of the criminal legal process and talk a lot about how people's lives are affected along the way at each of those stages. We're also, as we mentioned, going to talk about some ways in which the system is already collaborative, despite being considered an adversarial system. Yeah, it's it's interesting to, to it's an interesting discussion topic for us to uh, start with and to think about what our system looks like right now and has looked like for the duration of my career for about a dozen years here in Santa Clara County, what what systems that are essential to our process and then what parts of our processes that can be reimagined and be and can look different uh, with uh, with different frameworks and different attitudes. Um, those are some essential things that can be potentially reimagined and, and then in turn redefine the relationship between uh, DAs and public defenders like ourselves. You know, one of the criticisms that uh, people leveled at me during my campaign, and even now in my first seven months or so in office, was this idea that if a public defender were to win the district attorney election, or now as a former public defender in the district attorney's office, the whole system would collapse. People say, well, now you've got two public defenders. And it's supposed to be an adversarial system. You're supposed to fight against each other. And having someone who's experienced or brings the perspective of a public defender to running the district attorney's office is necessarily a bad thing. That's a criticism we hear a lot. And it's, you know, I think it's really fundamentally flawed for a number of reasons. One of them is that obviously there's unique perspective and experience that everybody has and everybody brings to their job. And experience is a good thing and can shape and inform difficult decisions. But the other issue that's sort of separate and apart from that is all too often the focus is on fighting and on the adversarial nature of a jury trial, for example. And we often forget that in the big sense, on the ground, day-to-day interactions or big picture outcomes, often we have more in common than we have separating us. Sometimes there are even better outcomes for everyone when we find ways to collaborate. And I hope we'll be able to talk about some of those ways today. And I'll just start by sort of remembering that often as a public defender, the thing I most wanted for my client was for them to never get arrested again. And that's exactly the same thing that I want now that I'm district attorney. I want every single person my office prosecutes to never come back into the system again. How we get there, what that process looks like is something that I hope we can unpack 
today. But I also remember as a public defender that I think I would have bristled at the idea of kind of the can't we all just get along argument. And so I'm wondering from Avi and Sajid, you know, what are parts of the adversarial system that are hard to imagine, you know, letting go of, even if it's also in the advancement of justice, as Chesa just talked about, and with a goal of preventing future criminal justice contact? I think having someone, if you're in a criminal you know, the criminal prosecution or the criminal process starts, the value that our system provides of having someone be your somebody who is ready to do kind of advise and then execute whatever your game plan is and is focused on all of this kind of in some global sense is something that I, it's hard to disentangle that from our adversarial process. Uh, the role that checking the government plays, like our role of there's some set of ideas of what this case is about. Having an independent person question every assumption with a deep loyalty to the client that promotes candor is something that you would possibly lose on the collaboration, you know, a non-collaboration axis, right? Like, so the, the more collaboration, the more distrustful, perhaps, or lack of candor you would get from the clients who already haven't selected us because they don't have financial means to uh, pay for someone to be their attorney. So that client trust that comes with this adversarial process uh, is something that I would be, I would be concerned about, about losing. What do you, what do you think, Sajid? Well, it's, it, it really, you know, we're, we've been operating within this framework, even when you look at a pleading document, like the complaint, it's the people of the state of California versus an individual. So when you even frame it that way, there is this feeling and there's this reality that it is this one person who is already, you know, indigent and traumatized and is coming into the system, likely jailed, that is up, up against the state. And the weight of the state is coming down on them and almost to the exclusion of them. Like it's as if the state doesn't include them as one of the people of the state of California. So within that framework, you know, to Avi's point, we have this system where if there's no one else with that person, at least they have their public defender to kind of push back against this, this boulder that is the, that is the state. And so it's hard to um, reimagine that system looking differently until we reimagine um, that the state, the people of the state of California includes the accused and is looking out for the best interest of the accused. And so and until unless that there is that inclusion, then it's hard to imagine ever giving up that sort of adversarial component to our to our job. And then you couple that with the liberty stakes that are at interest. You know, when we are thinking of people that are in jail or being subject to the prospect of jail or prison terms, um, it is hard to ever imagine a collaborative process that that where we as a public defender agree to collaborate with a system that ends up with uh, the people we represent in jail or in prison the way we currently incarcerate people. I want to let Chesa respond, but I, I wanted to jump in because your your example of, of for the people not including uh, a criminal defendant reminds me of a public defender I know who one time the prosecutor got up and said, I'm representing the people. And he stood up and said, I'm, re I'm here representing his client and the rest of the people. <laughs> what does it mean to say we represent the people? And does that include 
all of the people who are presumed innocent in, in our county jail who are there because on some level, we don't think, and frankly, it would be unethical for us to jail them if we did think they were innocent. And so there is a fu- fundamental tension between what all too often turns into a fallacy, this presumption of innocence, that we know judges and juries and police officers and prosecutors often don't really internalize or take seriously on the one hand. And on the other, the ethical imperative that we dismiss cases where we really believe the person to be innocent. Um, I, I think it's in some ways, again, to Saj's point, something that will ensure our system continues to have components that are really and truly adversarial. But my broader pushback is I think it's not an all or nothing dynamic. And I know there's an old saying you probably heard that the criminal bar, meaning the lawyers that practice criminal law, are far more civil with each other than the civil bar or the lawyers that practice civil law. And the reason is this phenomenon of repeat players. If you're a public defender or a prosecutor, you're going to the same courthouse day in, day out. And for your entire career, you're going to be dealing with the same small pool of lawyers. The civil bar is much bigger, more diverse in terms of jurisdictions, in terms of the areas of practice. And you're likely to never or maybe just rarely see the same lawyer again in your practice. So you can get away with being dishonest or manipulative to your opposing counsel in a way that criminal lawyers simply cannot. Your reputation, your integrity, the candor and trust with which you present information to the court and to opposing counsel is going to have long-term implications on your ability to do your job as a criminal lawyer on both sides. And so there's an element of collaboration that's necessary. You need to know whether you can accept the representations of opposing counsel about discovery or about schedules or about what position you'll take when you go on the record in front of the judge. We have to find ways to collaborate. And I think we do every day. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Chase. I, do, I don't think it's an all or nothing proposition. Um, you know, I do think that there are stages of the process where there can be uh, collaboration, where there are shared interests um, and mutual interests. And obviously that collaboration um, only goes so far. Ultimately, our constitution requires uh, an adversarial um, process when ultimately someone's at trial and there are um, those liberty stakes at at issue. But in order for that collaboration to occur, um, I do think that as you're attempting to do in San Francisco, there, there has to be a reframing of the role of a district attorney. Even using the word prosecutor to me is relatively simplistic and has a, it, 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 it narrows the scope of what ideally a district attorney is all about, a DA being someone who is a justice advocate, a uh, someone who is um, fulfilling a role of ensuring public safety as opposed to prosecuting, which is a very narrow portion of the job. Um, and then, you know, Avi, Avi can comment about this, and you, you both practice in our courts as public defenders. Uh, until and unless there is a recognition of the humanity of the people we represent, uh, uh, the accused, by district attorneys, then there really cannot be true collaboration uh, in in the stages that we are about to discuss, um, where you know we we have to imagine a system where the accused uh, it, and their humanity is recognized, where they're not recognized or defined by their worst moments, where there's a curiosity from the pro- from the district attorney's office 
about who the people we represent are, how did they arrive at this place and how do we get them to a different place uh, where they're actually called by their names as opposed to what we have seen in our courthouses where prosecutors, you know, finger wag and call people defendant and offender and convict and felon and things like that. Predator. Predator and sociopath and all these things that we've all seen um, occur in, in, in our courthouses. And then ultimately too, as I alluded to earlier, where there is a redefinition of what justice looks like, where jail and prison aren't our only answers to misbehaviors in our community. And then I think within that framework, there can be collaboration in its truest sense. And I would probably just say that what Sajid's talking about, those preconditions are so very much within reach. You know, the uh, com- amount, having being compassionate, you know, being... Uh, recognizing people's individual dignity and and not just people accused of crimes or people who have been harmed, right? Uh, even uh, people who conduct investigative work, right? Just treating people like individuals being skeptical where appropriate, you know, being zealous and diligent where appropriate, but just those preconditions are very realizable to something Chesa mentioned at the, at the jump about you know, the two two defenders, you know, we lose the adversarial system, the system crumbles, you know, that 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 posits that we have an effective system that is doing good stuff. And I'm I'm a witness to it and a participant in it. And I would say that so many times I'm just left asking, what was this about? What what did we what did we do in our, you know, this process that we've just done? You know, there can be moments of very powerful healing. There absolutely can. It is capable. There are moments that are very interesting where, you know, maybe the government believes something's the case and then it's been questioned through cross-examination and then people start to think, well, maybe something's not the case. And so there are some virtues of it and there's some potential in it. But so often we're just like, what was this about? I'm like that. What did we help the people who were harmed? Do we put the person back on the path to rehabilitation? Do we ensure that that person has the best shot at never getting arrested again and put it in a in a cage? Um, and the answer to that's often no. So, like this task that we're engaged in of reimagining this discussion, it, it could be very it, it's a very worthy discussion. Those preconditions can be met, and we can maybe start thinking: Let's just do it. What if we did it totally differently? What if we just tried to help everyone? Yeah, no, on that note, I think we should transition to looking at the system and its various stages and think about exactly what you said, Avi, in terms of which people are we helping and how, or which people are even pretending to help, if anyone, at each stage, um, and how can the players involved make a huge impact in whether justice is pursued and how it is. Um, So let's start with sort of the beginning of a typical case. Obviously, there's the out of the courtroom portion of a case where there's an arrest, interaction with police. But let's start with when a case is actually filed, the charging decision. Um, I want us to look at sort of the stages of a complaint being filed in a criminal case and examples of how the charging decisions that are made by a prosecutor, because defense attorneys are generally not involved, certainly public defenders are not involved in those charging decisions, and look at how those can change um, depending on who is handling those cases. And let me and let me weigh in and, and make a couple of points right off the bat here. One is public defenders, even more than privately hired defense attorneys, are not involved traditionally in this part of the process at all. If you if you know you're being investigated and you're wealthy, you may hire a private defense attorney. They may provide mitigation or 
defense theories to the prosecution, to the district attorney's office before they've decided if or how to file a case. But your traditional person accused of a crime who relies on court-appointed counsel doesn't get the benefit of that. And public defenders, therefore, tend to have very little visibility into this process. What I can say is there are many cases in my office that a public defender will never see, not only because we decide there's inadequate evidence to proceed or because there's some problematic search or seizure by the police that makes it impossible for us to prove the crime that did in fact occur, but also because we rely on a range of non-adversarial, non-criminal litigation approaches to intervene in conduct that the police bring us. So we have, for example, a restorative justice project in our juvenile division called Make It Right. And it is a pre-charging process where we refer eligible cases to community-based organizations at the request of victims of crime. We include them in the conversation and we seek a outcome that holds young people who've done wrong accountable in a way that doesn't adjudicate their case in a traditional courtroom or adversarial process. We do a similar thing with adults in our neighborhood courts where we refer cases. These are traditionally lower level cases um, for the adults. Right now, it's, it's mostly misdemeanors and we're in the process of expanding it. But for that process, there is no public defender involvement. There is no criminal defense lawyer involvement because we're not trying to give someone a criminal conviction and we're not trying to deprive someone of liberty. Those cases never even appear on the public defender radar. I want to flag briefly before I open it up one other category, which is further downstream after we have decided to file criminal charges in a traditional procedure. And after a lawyer is appointed at the first court appearance, many cases that we prosecute are eligible for our collaborative courts. And I think the name of those of that group of courts is important for our conversation today. We call them in San Francisco collaborative courts. They include our Veterans Justice Court, our Young Adult Court, our Behavioral Health Court, our Community Justice Court. These are all post-charging approaches to resolve cases that focus on humanizing and recognizing the needs of the person who has been accused of causing the harm, whether it be drug treatment, we have a drug court, whether it be housing, um, whether it be uh, job skills and job training. And we try to hold people accountable within the context of an existing criminal case where they do have a lawyer, but we try to do it with an eye towards, as we said at the beginning, making sure that they never come back into the system and setting them up to succeed. Um, I think in some ways, when we collaborate in those courts, collectively, we in the justice system are at our best. Um, I appreciate all of that, Chesa. And I I think, again, going back to what we what we talked about earlier and then what you just alluded to, Chesa, is, is the a recognition of the humanity of the accused um, and so what I think when we kind of reimagine even the charging process, um, I think Avi might speak to this, um, is ask is a, is a district attorney asking themselves, what is uh, the goal of this, of this intervention or this uh, all, you know, potential prosecution? What are we trying to achieve um, uh, from, a, from a macro or zoomed out perspective? 
Um, and is this even a case that belongs within our criminal justice system, or is this something that belongs somewhere else in our societal radar? Uh, does it belong uh, with a, in a social worker's office? Does it belong in a, within remaining within a family or within a school setting? You know, is there a different setting uh, that isn't our criminal courts uh, where this should be adjudicated? And then a desire uh, for more context. I often feel, because we're not involved on the front end, I often get a sense that district attorney's um, scope of information that they're receiving in terms of making a charging decision is solely based on one source of information, and that's police. So is there a genuine curiosity for um, more information? Um, is there a genuine curiosity or desire for information from other players that may not have been um, contacted by police or that aren't police officers to get more context about what happened, uh, what occurred, who the accused is, what was going on in their life, um, and, and, and then answering um, what is the best kind of path forward uh, to remedy what was going on in their life and thereby providing solutions for our victims as well. Um, and then a true scrutiny of police officer accounts. Um, one of the frustrations that we have is that there is a, a sense that district attorneys are essentially uh, entangled with or related to police officers, and there is a deference um, and a readiness to just trust everything and anything a police officer says as truth and as the holy grail, and in turn, a readiness to dis disregard anything the, the accused has to say as being false or biased or uh, lies. Um, so a true scrutiny of the accounts of police officers um, objectively and untethering that relationship so that there, there is this credibility that uh, district attorneys are making charging decisions from a macro perspective, objectively uh, taking into account all sides as opposed to just uh, just police officers and from and from victim alleged victim perspectives. Those are some of the thoughts I have. Just at the at the charging space, uh, it's really interesting how wealth disparity can kind of manifest into differential outcomes. One cool thing that has occurred in Contra Costa County in the Bay Area in San Francisco and here in Santa Clara is the establishment of early representation units that attach in some way uh, to people who have not been charged. It could be people who have been on the no complaint calendar in Contra Costa. Uh, it could be based on bookings that allow us to do early preparation for bail arguments that we'll talk about in a little bit. And we thought about these initially, like, well, this would result in a reduction in jail beds and you know financial savings. But really the principle is if you're arrested and booked and you need counsel at those critical stages, having counsel show up is something worthwhile. Even, you know, so it's still taking that adversarial process because you can have somebody then do some digging. Um, so uh, hopefully that's something that not within the collaboration adversarial framework, but a growth area uh, as we attach counsel in more places in the pre-filing, pre-charging space. And I should say, you know, the approach that I take that I try to have my whole office take is that we represent all of the people, including not just victims of crime, but also the people that we file charges against or who we're investigating for crime. And it is a different lens and it does often lead to different approaches, some of which manifest in very concrete, specific policies. Let me say that my efforts to level the playing field 
didn't just start when I was elected to district attorney. The early representation unit that Avi just described, we have in San Francisco's public defender's office. And it was my idea and I helped launch it and get the funding for it. And I believe that I- By early representation, Jason, just to make clear, you mean having public defender access to clients, but that are not been charged yet. Exactly. So the, the, the benefits that oftentimes the wealthy do get. Exactly. That's when we talk about leveling the playing field, as Avi was just saying. And I, I think I went and did a training for the Santa Clara Public Defender's Office uh, on that exact issue at some point a few years back. You did. Uh, it's really- I said, this guy's got some good ideas. He's a good idea. <laughs> He's going places. You know, it, it, it's just- I said, watch that guy. <laughs> it's just one of those things that- and you know this, having all of us having been public defenders, that where you see these very clear inequities and injustices where some people have access to support and service and other people don't. And the damage that can be done, not just to a case, but to someone's life in the two to three to four days that they wait in custody before being appointed a lawyer, before having access to the outside world in any way. And what a stark difference that is from someone who may have done something even worse or even more dangerous, who may be more objectively guilty of violating laws or social norms, but who has wealth. I've continued to try to have good ideas as San Francisco's district attorney. And some of those ideas have manifested in policies that I think speak to some of the concerns both of you have raised around charging and what district attorneys think about. And I think, Sajid, you were talking about how often and how easy it is for charging district attorneys to only see one side of a story, to only receive information from police, and particularly in cases where the charges involve resisting arrest or assaulting an officer, limiting yourself to just one side of a story is very, very um, problematic. So a policy we implemented in, in our office is that we will never file those kinds of charges without first watching body-worn camera footage or other available witness testimony. We know that there are, of course, numerous instances where there are legitimate righteous charges for assaulting officers and resisting arrest, and we can and will prosecute those. But we also know that all too often, police who themselves commit misconduct or use excessive force will arrest someone and ask district attorneys to file those charges to cover up their misconduct. And we cannot be complicit in the latter. And we don't know if we're being complicit if we refuse or don't take the time to actually look at the evidence. Another similar policy we implemented and we're in the process of rolling out is to have a list of officers who we will not rely on to prove a case. And if we know that that officer's testimony is essential to proving the case, then we won't file it in the first place. And the goal is to not only stop charging cases that rely on officers who we have good reason to distrust, but also to work with local law enforcement leadership to get them off the streets so they are no longer the face of our police departments or our sheriff's departments, so they are no longer interacting with the public in a way that can do so much damage to public trust and integrity of our law enforcement process. Yeah, I appreciate that, Chesa, because, you know, when when we talk about collaboration and the potential for that collaboration, what that requires is an untethering of at least even the appearance of, of the deep-rooted relationship of the police department and district attorneys. Um, it, so moving to a more, uh, even the appearance of, and in reality, an objective 
district attorney role that is objectively evaluating police officer accounts and police officer conduct will permit for that trust to develop uh, with public defenders and the accused so that there, there can be that collaboration. Um, um, but otherwise, because of the system that we've been operating within where uh, there is not only the appearance of, but the reality of a kind of incestuous relationship between prosecutors and police, that type of collaboration can never really exist within that framework. I also think it's important to, when we talk about charging decisions and the people that are affected or helped in making those decisions or hurt a lot of the time, um, it's important to think about things like enhancements. So gang enhancements, status enhancements, in other words, punishing someone for their priors. Those are have always struck me as so strange because if I commit a crime against you, if I assault you um, and hurt you, it's not. Don't do that. Maybe you, Chesa. Please. Oh. Um, but just kidding. But you know, if I, if <laughs> I a criminal threat, <laughs> I'm I'm going to be the first person ever prosecuted as a result of my own podcast. But I, uh, <laughs> but I do think it's important to remember that that assault that I just committed on Chesa hypothetically is not worse. Um, because I, like I have example. <laughs> not a good example, but it's not worse if I commit an assault on someone because I had priors that that doesn't change the way the victim experiences it. And we are not helping a victim by making those charges harsher because of that person's priors, because that victim is affected in that moment by what happened. And that's what they should be charged on is what actually impacted a person who's hurt. Um, and I don't I don't think that it's honest to say that we are helping in any way, any any person at all by punishing someone based on priors or by enhancements, all we are really doing is hurting someone for their past, which they've already presumably been convicted of or, or have already been affected by. And as you know, Rachel, I've put in place a policy to presumptively never charge gang enhancements or other status enhancements. Um, the goal is to hold people accountable for what they did in the case at hand and not punish them doubly for who they are, what neighborhood they grow up in or who, who their friends are. Or, or even things they've already been punished for in the past. I do think we could say more and perhaps will on a later episode about the public safety implications of knowing that we're prosecuting someone who has a history of other serious conduct. But let's move on at, for now to another area that's very close to my heart. We've already touched on it briefly, which is the problems with the bail system. For folks who aren't familiar with how money bail works, and thankfully it's on its way out the door in California, but we still do contend with it every day in, in most criminal courts. Money bail is a, is a system where the wealthy, no matter how dangerous, no matter how guilty they are, can buy their way out of custody. While poor people who may be wrongfully arrested, wrongfully accused, may have viable legal defenses, may present no public safety risk whatsoever, languish behind bars simply because of an inability to come up with a cash payment to the courts. I'm proud to say that one of my first policies when I took office, after many, many years of litigating against money bail as a public defender, when I took office as district attorney, one of the first things I did was prohibit my staff from ever asking a judge to put a price tag on freedom. Instead, we do an assessment of whether or not it is safe under any circumstances with any conditions to release the person we are accusing of a crime from jail. If it is, then we ask the court to release them with the least restrictive alternatives that can reasonably assure public safety. If it's not, in our view, if there are no conditions that can reasonably assure public safety, then we ask the court to hold them, detain them 
pending trial. Uh, love to hear, obviously, Sajid, about some of your experiences and how the different approaches that particular assistant district attorney takes and how that affects the procedural justice that your clients receive. And just to jump in real quick before we get there, just wanted to let our listeners know we will be doing a full episode on bail very soon. So we will be covering it in much more detail on a later episode. Yeah. And one of the one of the things, the, the tentacles of the bail system, as we've known it for the uh, for the dozen or so years that Avi and I have been in our offices and the, for the years that you both practice in the PD's office, is we all know that um, DAs will prey upon the vulnerability of the person sitting in jail who can't afford to get out. That will manifest in the on the brink of trial, the get out today, plead to the felony strike offer um, that almost all of the people we represent will take, not because of the truth of the charge against them or because they are in fact guilty of the charge against them, but because that is the price they're willing to pay for their uh, freedom. And so it becomes this perverse, very ugly construct that unfortunately, um, from our vantage point, from my vantage point, that district attorneys traditionally have um, preyed upon and utilized for for, uh, securing convictions. And so it's this like it's one harm that leads into another harm, and it just it spirals into to a massive cluster of harms. And none of it is rooted in in the truth of the charges or in um, ascertaining some sort of uh, degree of justice. It's again rooted in uh, what is the price that a, a person in jail is willing to pay for their freedom. And oftentimes, the people we represent are willing to plead guilty to anything uh, just to get out uh, because of again. The, the way that our the way we incarcerate as well it's another layer uh, that is um, added on to that bail is tied into how we've done things for so long and the cases that have demonstrated the way that we've been doing things is unconstitutional those have been around for so long too so uh, there's a principle uh, that people uh, should not be uh, detrimentally held in jail held in jail longer, uh, and held in jail pretrial because they don't have money. Uh, that's a, a foundational principle. It used to be the case in some states where uh, you could you would do you know six days in jail, but if you couldn't pay your hundred dollar fee, you'd do eight days in jail. And the Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional. Uh, but what we do with money bail in places like California is we say we need insurance that you're going to come back to court, and the insurance payment is twenty thousand dollars, forty thousand dollars. Uh, and people can't pay even the whatever percentage it is to some company in order to get out. So we, there's this company. It has a monopoly over the ability to release you that the court refers you to, essentially. The whole outcome of a case could be changed from that one decision that's made at the first court appearance or a later decision at a bail motion about whether to release you, how much communication you can have with your attorney. You know, it's, it's harder to work with your attorney to defend yourself when you're incarcerated. And so, I mean, the, the awakening that is connected to uh, uh, the uh, this all the work that came out of San Francisco uh, with Civil Rights Corps and with Chesa on money bail reform, with folks who are working to change the way we approach bail is for us to be saying this to courts, right? So now in, now in court, I, I spend time just talking about the reason this person's in jail right now is because he doesn't have $2,000. If he had $2,000, he would be out independently of public safety concerns. It's just the fact that he doesn't have $2,000. 
And so we're engaged in this wealth discrimination. Before you end it, you have to talk about it and name it. And it, it, it colors everything. And the question that I will have for lots of our reforms is, what if the district attorney uh, was really interested in the person, right? Like, like not to be their attorney, right? Not to do anything inappropriate, but really interested in what's going to work. You know, how do, how do we, what if that was the conversation? How do we get this person out? Because they're coming back out, by the way. They're getting out. For the folks who aren't facing life without parole, they're getting out. And so how do we come up with a plan to get them out? What do we do for them? Uh, that would be an incredible conversation. Have. I welcome it, you know? One of the things that I do every week is I have a meeting with some of my chiefs, a phone call or an in-person meeting where we talk about the most challenging cases, not always the most serious, but ones that present very unique or challenging circumstances for us to resolve. Often they're the most serious cases, but there's also two other conversations that we always have as part of our discussion of every single case. And one of them is where are the victims at on this? What do they want? What are their needs? How can we meet their needs? And another one, which I'm sorry to say, I think may be somewhat unique to my approach or to my office's approach is exactly what Avi was saying, which is this individual who we are accusing of a crime is going to get out at some point. What does that look like? What steps can we take to ensure that when it happens, it's safe? And does an additional year or two or five of incarceration make their ultimate reentry more or less safe? Often the answer is less. Often there are things we can do right now today to bring people home in ways that will increase the likelihood that they can get a job and get an education and support their family and not get rearrested. And often the choice to extract a higher punishment, even in those cases where the law allows and where the evidence permits us to seek a more draconian consequence for someone's mistake or for someone's criminal conduct is not in the interest of public safety. And so my approach is every single time I'm thinking about a case, how can we support the victims and how can we support a successful reentry plan? Now, I want to posit a question to Sajanavi with that in mind. Imagine for a moment if public defenders took a genuine and not just a performative, but a genuine interest in healing crime victims. I know it's not your ethical duty. I know it's not what the law or the job description calls for. But do you agree that there are ways in our current system that you as public defenders can truly care about and factor in the needs of victims without betraying the interests of your clients? I think so. Yes. So the healing process, right? The healing process that could occur in a criminal case does not occur through cross-examination. It, it's That's not what that's for. The, the harm that occurred needs to be healed some other way. And so I think just being concerned about people, I think like caring about people and being concerned about people is a good quality to have in life and in this criminal system. I think like being hopeful and also just like listening to people. So like by textbook definitions, I'm probably the worst cross-examiner here uh, just in terms of my kind of non-compliance with cross-examination, just ask answering, you know, here's what I want to know. This is the answer I want. 
right? Like, I just want to, I really do want to talk to people. I can, I can tell. I, I, we're having a good conversation right now. We could do right. this all day. Yeah. And just what you're, you're, you're a I, good conversationalist. I am a good conversationalist. Isn't that right? Um, but <laughs> and he knows how to ask a leading question as well. But, um, but you know, there, there are some, there's some things to be cautious about. So for example, um, okay, I'm an attorney, right? We're all attorneys. Uh, we're engaged in a legal process. You want to make sure that people are aware this, this is who I am. I'm an attorney. I represent this person in this criminal case. Right. And so everything that we all or that society brings to the criminal process can create some roadblocks to it, but that doesn't stop the way that we interact in it. You know, when I listen to someone, like when I have a, a person who's testifying at a sentencing hearing or giving a statement, I listen to them. I, I, I give them full attention. I want to hear what they have to say uh, and be respectful. And I, and I just think that that's, we're all called to do that. Uh, we don't have to be dragged into some sort of, you know, negative space for some case outcome. I don't think it's essential, uh, but it's different if you have somebody where you have, you know, for example, uh, the contradictory body worn camera footage to say, you know, it's exactly where I was going to go. Yeah. It's different. Yeah, I think it's it, there's so many different examples of how a lot of the times it does serve your client better, as I think you were alluding to, Avi, when you're the jury doesn't hate you because you're not being a complete jerk to certainly a crime victim. Um, I think, you know, an example that comes to mind was the Harvey Weinstein trial um, and some of the approaches that his lawyer took, which she has an absolute right to take and has the duty to zealously advocate. But I think some of the approaches she took in doing that were actually really counterproductive. Um, by alienating people and by taking a certain kind of approach to her cross-examination. Um, so I, I think that that's, you know, something that also has to be balanced. But I agree with you. I think there's a way to do cross-examination um, when you're a defense lawyer that is respectful and serves your client and values, to Chase's point, um, victims. I wanted to add that, you know, many things can be equally true and equally achievable. Um, we can hold... Uh, offenders and people that have been accused of and ultimately are guilty of crimes uh, accountable for their behaviors while also achieving healing and restoration for victims in the same breath. Um, and I think it does require a, a, a few things. One is it, it does require us to move away from jail and prison as our metrics, uh, or as our measure, our metric of justice, um, and a recognition that that doesn't have to be our uh, kind of go-to inherent answer to misbehavior and crime in our community. Um, and so when we move away from that, then I think we are better able to have the conversations that Chesa is, is discussing, like how do we hold the accused accountable for their misbehavior while also ensuring healing and justice for the victims, but it does require a redefinition of what justice looks like. Um, you think about domestic violence cases or child abuse cases, um, cases where there are going to be continued relationships between the parties involved. What are we going to be doing to ensure that this doesn't happen again, that the offender is is held accountable, but while also um, healed from whatever is the root cause of their misbehaviors, while also ensuring um, the justice and healing for the victim and ensuring, hopefully, uh, some some measure of them being able to reconcile, however that's going to look like moving forward, that does require uh, the defense attorney to have an understanding of or having empathy for uh, victims' family dynamics to ensure um, kind of a best outcome. And as a public defender, 
it, you know, to your point, Chesa, is that I gain more credibility when I walk into a DA's office or have a conversation with the DA and saying, here's what my desired outcome is on this case. And here's how it not only um, serves the person I'm representing, but here's also how it serves the interests that you're concerned about in terms of public safety, healing for the victim. Um, I've had those conversations all the time. The problem I've had in those conversations is there does not appear to be a recognition from the DAs I interact with of, of the needs of the person I'm representing. So that conversation kind of just gets, gets shortcutted or short-circuited because there is a one-way recognition from my side, at least that I feel, but not a recognition the other way. And so there's just not going to be a meeting of the minds um, when that happens. But sometimes they're also related. I mean, I think when we think about collateral consequences that happen as a result of a conviction, and by that I mean the fact that you mentioned, you know, family dynamics cases, the fact that somebody may get deported over a certain conviction, when which oftentimes the family does not want and devastates the family, even if the family is is a victim in the case. Um, things like even even things as that may seem as small as whether someone is going to be affected in terms of their licensing for their job and lose a job, which then means the entire family has no income and is is made much worse. Um, there are so many different ways in which we ignore or traditional prosecutors have ignored, you know, treatment as an outcome and, and things that will actually help the victim by ensuring that if a criminal defendant gets help and is addressing the root of the problem, there's less likely to be another case. There's less likely to be, that person's less likely to be victimized again. And I think, as you said, Sajid, that sometimes gets overlooked. I think the classic example of the point you're making, Rachel, is with mental illness. And, you know, in San Francisco, about 75% of the people arrested and taken to county jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or some combination of the two. Um, Some statistics show that as high as a third of the people in California state prison are actively seeking help for mental illness. And that doesn't include the folks who lack insight into their own mental illness. So we're talking about a very significant portion of the people whose lives are passing through our courtrooms, our jails, our prisons. And yet there's not a lot of insight or empirical rigor into this question of does sending someone who's severely mentally ill to jail or giving them a harsher crime on their record do anything to promote public safety in the long term. So if as district attorneys, we take truly seriously our representation of all of the people, and if we take seriously our commitment to make society safer for everyone, then we have to be very careful and very particular about where and when we rely on incarceration as a tool to promote public safety or rehabilitation. And again, as Avi said, Everybody gets out with very, very few exceptions. If we're dealing with someone who we know is severely mentally ill, incarceration in many instances will actually exacerbate the underlying conditions and put the public at even greater risk in the future. I wanted to just follow up on one thing about the uh, family violence example. Here's something that happens all the time. You have a a misdemeanor type of domestic violence incident. It could be a, a vandalism. It could be you know, breaking property, it could be striking someone, right? And it could be uh, in a domestic relationship, dating, spousal, uh, shared child. And there's a there's a child present. Now, here's how what our system does. Our system will say, okay, you're going to get uh, the person's in jail because they couldn't post bail. 
you're going to get uh, credit for time served. You'll be released. You have to do 52 weeks of batterers intervention program. And there was a child there. So you have to do 52 weeks of parenting classes. Now, what does that, what about the kid, right? What, what services are then deployed by our system to the kid? And I'm not saying like social workers removing the child or dependency court. I don't know what the answer is, but what I'm saying is like, how do we invest in that kid in that moment? And that's like something that is different, like to Chase's question that he posited of how much compassion, you know, are we capable of sounding the alarm for our client's own child to get resources invested in them is something that, uh, you know, kind of captures a full, a more global societal value than what we're so focused on. It's so true, Avi. And I think one of the things that even is worse is a lot of the times these automatic stay away orders where not only, you know, are the conditions all imposed on the person being convicted, but then they're being ordered that they can't see their kids. So there's really no way. So the kid's last memory is their parent getting taken away in handcuffs and they're not allowed to have any contact. And so there's no effort to, you know, have that relationship repaired and think about how to actually improve upon based on all the things they're supposedly learning in these classes. And then you also think Rachel about the other collateral consequences that you alluded to earlier, even saddling someone with a felony conviction, what that means in our society, uh, what that means for their ability to generate an income, what that means for them to be able to get housing and to just be a functional community member. Um, so, it, you know, when we when we go back to charging decisions and we go back to bail and we go into plea negotiations, like a real recognition from district attorneys as to what it means uh, for someone to be saddled with the felony conviction for us, for uh, for example, or and for us to zoom out and and redefine what what why uh, felony convictions mean so much in a society as they as they do right now. And then on top of that, when we think about um, incarcerating people in terms of family separation, we saw it at the border during the immigration crisis. But well, we know, and Chesa, you've experienced this personally, uh, family separation has been happening in our criminal legal system uh, since its inception. We, we separate and break families, and we know the ripple effect that that has on, on public safety or the lack thereof when we have broken families. So when we incarcerate people in our jails, but then worse off, when we send them to remote, desolate prisons and we make phone calls expensive and contact visits almost impossible, and we essentially separate children from their families and vice versa, we we know the, the public safety impact that that has, but there really has been no recognition of that in the courtroom level when we're dealing with pretrial discussions and negotiations. There doesn't seem to be a recognition from district attorneys as to those impacts, and it all gets zoomed in on this one case and extracting as much time as possible without a rec recognition of these uh, very severe collateral consequences. So again, for for true kind of collaboration or for public safety to be uh, um, to be effectuated, there has to be a recognition of these uh, kind of tentacle impacts of of these decisions in the, that happen in our courtrooms every day. I think that's right, and you know we've been talking about the impacts of different stages of the process on people on both sides. Um, throughout the criminal justice process. And I think, of course, we've talked a little bit about, you know, plea bargains, but there's also post-conviction after trials, the sentencings that happen and how people are impacted by those. I think where I used to practice, oftentimes 
you know, if you went to trial, you were getting the harshest penalty after trial, at least if it was a serious case. Um, and so I'm wondering about ways in which you see the real people, both criminal defendants as well as victims, as we've been talking about, impacted by decisions that are made by other people, judges um, in the system. Well, one of the things that uh, that we've all, I think, experienced is the very the reality of the of the trial tax. You know, there's an offer before trial by a judge or a prosecutor. The accused uh, rejects that offer, decides to go to trial. They're convicted, and then all of a sudden, the district attorney is now asking for a more severe sentence than what they offered before trial. It, it really does have sig- significant, far-reaching impact not only on that person who's been convicted, um, but also systemically. When we all do our have done our jobs or are doing our jobs in our in the jail and we're meeting with uh, the people we're representing, so many of them are afraid of that trial tax and and therefore are willing to take deals that maybe they shouldn't be taking. Um, they're forsaking their trial rights um, because of that fear, and it's not, again not rooted in a in the truth of the charges, but it, again is just is rooted in being risk averse and being afraid of what's what the what the hammer is on the other side of trial, and it really does again diminish um, the vibrance or the 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 truth of our amendment right to a jury trial. Well, I want to go back, if I could, briefly to this notion about representing the people, and also about the broader dialogue about collaboration versus um, you know being adversarial. I think in many ways when we're in a jury trial, when the system has gone all the way that far. Remember, it's only about 2% of criminal cases that end up in front of a jury. It's a very small but significant percentage of cases, uh, significant in, in terms of what it represents and what it teaches the actors in the system about likely outcomes and other similar cases, that district attorneys not focus narrowly on winning in an adversarial system. But remember that we do represent all of the people, even in, perhaps especially in the context of a jury trial. We've talked a little bit about what that means when it comes to how we look at the person accused, the defendant, what that means in terms of um, the possible risk, uh, that the, the trauma of exposing a victim or a witness to being cross-examined by someone who loves conversation as much as Avi. Uh, but, but, but all joking aside, it can be a tremendously traumatic experience for witnesses, especially in family violence cases. I appreciate that, uh, Chase. And, and I, kind of going back to where this um, conversation about trial um, started is like, what, imagine that someone is convicted after, after trial that you just outlined where, you know, there was not a meeting of the minds in terms of the facts. Um, you know, going back to what Avi said in terms of mandatory minimums, I've had scenarios where my clients, people that I've represented have been convicted of crimes where the the crimes they've been convicted of trigger these mandatory minimums. And I walk, I've walked into these sentencing hearings where nothing I could say about the person that I uh, represent um, would matter you know, by law. Uh, it's a stripping of the humanity of the process. The judge is actually stripped of any power to do anything by these mandatory minimum laws. And so that humanity that we started this conversation with is just lost. It becomes a function of penal code sections and uh, convictions. And there is no room in our current construct of our laws for uh, the humanity of the accused to be considered, the humanity of the victims to be considered. It's just a one size fits all system and it's, it doesn't um, promote 
any of the interests that we've been dis discussing or outlining um, here. And, and, and then the last thing I wanted to, to mention on, on this topic is, um, you know, at sentencing, after someone's been convicted, we often or we always turn the case over to a probation officer, a police officer to do a social study and to make their recommendations of, of what the best outcome is in terms of a sentence. But we know police officers are not qualified to put together treatment plans of that honor all parties in the system. So why can't we have that look differently? Why can't we have a social study created by a psychologist or a social worker who looks at all parties in this process and says, here's a treatment plan that we think can help uh, heal the offender while also promoting public safety, while also healing the, uh, the victim. Um, so it's just another way for us to reframe and ultimately collaborate on, on outcomes that I think are going to serve all parties in the system as opposed to uh, just a kind of one size fits all jail and prison equals justice uh, measurement. Sure. Well, thank you for that. I think we are all working to think about ways to make the system serve people better. Um, before we wrap up, though, I know that Avi's been preparing a lightning round of sorts. Um, so I want to make sure we have time for that. Okay. Uh, so here's how we'll do it. We put out the questions. I'll ask the questions uh, and maybe we can just go around uh, and everyone can say, we'll go Rachel, Chase, Sajid, and then I'll add my two cents. Okay. I like how he gives himself the uh, most time. Yeah, I was like, great, I go first. <laughs> it does not sound like, there's not a level playing field here. It's lightning. Just... It's lightning. Uh, <laughs> so much for caring about the people. I see you. Okay. Which section of penal code of the penal code would a progressive prosecutor most like to see repealed? 290, sex registration. Jason? I don't know. I, gosh, I don't know. Repealed. While he's thinking, I'll just say that's because it doesn't help protect anybody. And it's overbroad. So I'm just sitting here watching me in time, and she's thinking, there's so many choices, just pick one. Yeah, one eight, one 186.22. You've already kind <laughs> I, of done it. I know. I know. I was, that's just what I was thinking about. I was like, well, which, but it's more than one provision. There's all these different ones, but. Can you explain that? Gang enhancements. Uh, just Thank you. changing, uh, repealing gang enhancements the way they are uh, investigated, the way they're prosecuted. Uh, the way they are uh, sentenced, it just all needs to be scrapped and started over. I think Chase is already kind of doing it. We are. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to steal Sajid's answer, but I mean, I think it's the broader the, the broader framework to the, uh, the, the so-called criminal street gang terrorism, um, that whole piece of legislation. But I'm really rethinking my answer. <laughs> this is what happens when you go first. I would do... Uh, the three strikes law, mm. um, or, or, um, or, well, this is like being a wild card. This is like my, like, I is ten fifty four. I would go back to non-reciprocal discovery, um, which is a never a place that I've practiced. Uh, but I've heard that it was interesting. Okay. Next question. Lightning's going to strike again. Uh, what factor do you, and what factors should any prosecutor consider when deciding whether to file felonies? or misdemeanors on police reports that describe wobbler offenses, so offenses that could be charged as a felony or a misdemeanor? I can only pick one? There's a lot. I think they should look at the person's age. It's a, it's a, it's a factors. Yeah, give me, give me whatever you think. Their priors, um, any mitigation in terms of the effects of a conviction, a felony conviction specifically on their lives. Um, obviously, I think, you know, the severity, I guess you said the factors the case could go either way. But I think it's really about the person and trying to give them another chance if, if there's someone who hasn't really gotten the opportunity yet. 
I'll add on to Rachel's factors. I think those are all good. I think we need to know what motivated the crime, how much damage was caused. Are they willing to uh, take responsibility and try to heal the harm that they caused? Do they show some kind of remorse or um, are they willing to make efforts to better themselves? Um, and again, I mean, prior history, mental health, um, any childhood trauma, and also, of course, the the views of the victim in the case. They covered it. Weapons, actual violence, if there were actual injuries. I think those are all factors that, that should be considered. Okay. Um, I joined that. Uh, who plays you in the Law & Order reboot uh, progressive <laughs> prosecution, progressive DAs? Uh, Ra- is that an insult? Is this an insulting question? This is from Somal Trevedis with the ACLU. He posted it publicly. So if you're in a 20, if you're in a reboot, who plays you in the reboot? I think it's a nice question. It's a nice question. I'm teasing about it being a reboot and not an original. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, um, I Zoe Deschanel. I, I gotta say that I've never owned a TV in my entire life, and I have never seen oh an episode God, of Law and Order. So I, I, I'm a little bit. It's a terrible show. You're I, well, so I've heard, but I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss to even understand the framework for the question. And I have to say, I'm sorry for, uh, for that, but I have read a lot more books as a result of never owning a TV. Is Chase a failing the lightning round? Is that failing. what's happening? Yeah, definitely. He's lightning suited round. for lightning. He's deliberative. He's, he's thoughtful. All right, Sajid, what about you? The people I get mistaken for are Aziz Ansari and you. So one of those two people. <laughs> I thought you were going to say playing Brad Pitt or Robert Redford. But. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I'll be playing Sajid in the reboot. Yeah. And for me, it's obviously Camille Nanjiani after he got into superhero shape. So, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I think that's uh, I think that's all we had on the lightning. Yeah. Well, it was so much fun talking with you both. And thanks for doing this crossover episode, which was our first one with Ader and a Better. Thank you all for your time. I know we could keep doing this. Hopefully we'll get another chance. Lots more to discuss. Keep up the good work. And um, hopefully we'll be able to do it in person next time. Great seeing you all. Thanks, Rachel. Here on Chasing Justice, we will, of course, continue to talk about the role of the people in the criminal legal system, as well as ways for collaboration in an adversarial system. In the meantime, check out our website for more information on Sajid and Avi, as well as a link to their podcast, a link to Sajid's blog, as well as some of his writing, and some articles about a recent incident that Sajid had with the Santa Clara County DA. If you'd like to reach us, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is Chasing Podcast. You can email us at chasingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Chasing Justice Podcast. Chasing Justice is available anywhere you get your podcasts. And a reminder that we will shout out our favorite review on a future episode. Special thank yous go out to the following people. Jake Young for our editing. Dylan Yep for technical production. Tom Meredith for our music. Aaron Merle for our logo. Kelsey Russum for ongoing guidance. And another special thank you to our summer interns, Olympia Taylor, Miles Kalekian, and Milo Kami. I'm your co-host and producer, Rachel Marshall. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next time. Stay tuned.